Welcome to Conversations in Process, hosted by Jay McDaniel and sponsored by Open Horizons and the Cobb Institute. These conversations explore a way of understanding and living in the world that emphasizes the continual becoming and fundamental interconnectedness of all things. But they're also intended to provide an ongoing interaction in which the stories, insights, and wisdom of each conversation partner can expand your horizon and enrich your journey and process. In this week's conversation, Jay is joined by Robert Mesley, a good friend of Jay's and an influential figure in the process movement. Known as Bob to his friends, he was a professor of philosophy and religion at Graceland University until his retirement in 2016. His excellent and accessible introductory texts, Process Theology, A Basic Introduction, and Process Relational Thought, an introduction to Alfred North Whitehead, have provided thousands of readers with their first point of entry into process thought, and yet they're insightful enough to enrich the understanding of even the most well-versed. Bob and his wife Barbara currently live in Chicago, where he still enjoys swimming in Lake Michigan, the place where he gained some of his earliest insights into process thought. Well, Bob, it's great to be with you today. And um, I can't tell you how often I have used your book, Process Relational Philosophy, and have referred to me your book, Process Theology. And those two books together have influenced so many people in quite positive ways. And so I'm glad to have the author himself with me today to ask him some basic questions that I, I imagine a lot of people are curious about. They want to meet the author, and we're getting to do that today. Well, thank you, Jim. Now, one question that a lot of people will ask, and I myself ask, is how in the world did you get interested in process theology and process philosophy in the first place? How did that happen, and why did that happen? Well, the, the short answer is I went to the University of Chicago Divinity School, which had been a center for process thinking, gosh, by the mid-70s for almost 50 years. But a better answer is to back up a little bit, maybe. And I thought of some different things uh, this time, Jay, that I haven't talked so much with you about. One thing is that, like many other people, I grew up in the one true church. You may not know that. But, yeah, I grew up in the one true church in all the universe and didn't realize that other people were also growing up in their one true church in all the universe. And although I had a lovely religious community to grow up in, that put kind of a binder on our world. We didn't think we really needed to learn from other people, and maybe we shouldn't be learning from other people because that might corrupt us. And so however loving and kind a community I was in, it took me a long time to work well. It took me all my teenage years to work out of that and to get out of the idea that I was in the one true community turned out to really make me receptive to process relational thinking, which is so contrary to that. And I'll say more about it later, but that's, that's an important background piece. Another little thing is that there was one man in our community, a church leader, who would come to our general church conference and say, a conference should be a conferring. And I heard him many times, and I can still hear him in my mind, a conferring. 
And I thought, wow, that's interesting. And he also said to me once, Bob, we have to escape the bifurcated universe. And I had no idea what he meant. But those two things stuck in my mind. And then when I got to the University of Chicago Divinity School, eventually I began to study Wyman and said, oh, oh, four ings, emerge in, integrate in, expand in, deepen in, were Wyman's four sub-events. And I said, hey, that sounds good to me. I realized I'd been prepared. And a second thing that I found when I began to study process thought was Whitehead's idea of beauty. That the kind of beauty that he's most interested in is the intrinsic structure of experience. And that the quest for, for harmony and intensity of experience requires contrast and tension and sometimes maybe even a little bit of chaos. But those two things, that we should be conferring with people, listening to people, being actively receptive, and that beauty arises from actively reaching out to include, really reached me. For example, if you're going to think of beauty, the idea that there's one poem that's so truly beautiful that you don't need any other poems is so ridiculous. And the idea that one symphony is so beautiful that you don't need any more paintings or you don't need you know, any more delicious food or something, help me to articulate why the idea that there is one true spirituality didn't make any sense to me either. And so those things really helped me prepare to encounter Wyman and Whitehead and to say, wow, this is, this is good. I like this. They're drawing. Can you, can you say a, a little word about Wyman? You're talking about Henry Nelson Wyman. Because yeah. your listeners may not know about him, but he's such an important process philosopher in his own right. So just a word about Wyman. Sure. In 1927, Henry Nelson Wyman was invited to the University of Chicago Divinity School to explain Whitehead to them. And he followed Whitehead very largely until Process and Reality came out and Wyman could not go with Whitehead's God. And Wyman said, no, the God that I'm interested in is creative transformation or creative interchange, which involves four sub-events. And that is the first is that we must engage in emerging awareness of the values and the world and the people around us. Secondly, as we take that in, we have to be prepared to do integrative work, both positive and negative, to see what values we can take into our lives and what we need to reconsider, perhaps get rid of some of our own, but reconstruct ourselves. And as we do that, we should expand our awareness, our capacity for awareness of the many values in the world around us, whether that's food or music or ideas or communities or different religious groups or ethnic groups, you know. And then as we do that, we should be able to engage in a deepening of community. We've learned to ask better questions. We learn to ask. Maybe we've learned to taste or hear the music or sense the rhythm of the poetry better whatever it may be, 
maybe we've made friends in different communities. So this expanding and deepening community. So those four ings, you know, emerging awareness, integrating, expanding, and deepening constitute the four-part creative transformation that Wyman saw as God, as the thing that rightly demands of us that we give it everything we have, that we love it with our whole heart, might, mind, and strength, and devote our lives to it that that is what is truly worthy to be called God. And it's a purely natural process, however that functions. That's what he meant by God. Somewhere, somewhere along the lines, uh, Wyman sounds so compelling, I, I think, why go to Whitehead? Uh, that makes so much sense. But you did go to Whitehead, or you were drawn to Whitehead at the same time. And we'll say a word a bit, second, uh, in a moment, about his understanding of God. But... What aspects of Whitehead's thought attracted you or interested you in those, in those early years or still now? Yeah. Well, the first thing that actually hit me, I think, was that the future doesn't exist. I, I should say that I was reading Process and Reality over at Chicago Theological Seminary with Wittig Schroeder. And I was reading, actually reading it to our baby daughter, Sarah. <laughs> it seemed to entertain her as much as anything else I was reading and despite the absence of pictures. But uh, one day I was out by Lake Michigan, looking at the lake, trying to figure out what the heck this process stuff was about. And as I've told you many times, suddenly I was just overcome, just overcome my whole world turned upside down. And I had this powerful mind shift to say, the future does not exist. It's not out there waiting for us. It's not actualized somewhere in the mind of God or any place else. The future really doesn't exist. My foot doesn't exist in the future. The sidewalk doesn't exist in the future. The future is becoming constantly. And we're always falling into nothingness almost, and yet not disappearing because the world keeps becoming. So I was really first and foremost converted to a vision of process, my golly, the world is really becoming. It's not like music stamped onto a record. It's like jazz composition that we're creating as we go. And that was a radically different view for me in many respects. And then as I studied further, again, I got Wyman's creative transformation, but then also that idea of beauty. That beauty, when Wyman's, when Whitehead says that Know, that the world is good when it's beautiful. He doesn't mean that everybody has enough money to hang art on their wall. He's talking about the character of our experience as rich with harmony and intensity and contrast and our willingness to engage in tough self-analysis and radical openness to the world in order to have that beauty and help others achieve it too. So that's, you know, start. but you couldn't do Wyman, I think, without doing Whitehead. That's where Wyman came from. Uh, were there any other aspects of Whitehead's thought that attracted you? For example, in your, in your book, in, in your life, you speak of experience going all the way down. And yeah. that, that side of Whitehead, which sees the whole of the, the world, indeed the universe, as alive in some way, filled with experience, at least, in some way. Was that interesting to you or, or, or tangential? that side of Whitehead? That was mind boggling. Mm -hmm. uh, I was gonna say, 
when we consider discussing a complaint about process thought, it is, oh my golly, that is just mind-blowingly crazy. How can anyone possibly believe that experience goes all the way down? The problem is that it seems to go all the way down. And so I have to say, yeah, it looks like experience goes all the way down. And as our good friend Wang Ha has said to me, well, that means that the universe is an ocean of feeling. And that we, and I was so impressed by something you said the other day, Jake, with regard to insects. Well, life's complicated, but if it struggles to escape you, it deserves at least some respect. Even if you go ahead and swat it, because life's complicated. It is an ocean of feeling, and that insect is having feeling, and that amoeba is having feeling. So it was a difficult concept to get a grip on, because it seems so crazy, but I gradually became more and more persuaded by it that I live in an ocean of feeling and it makes life richer to think that way. I'm part of that ocean. You mentioned our friend Wang Zhaha from China and you and I have both been to China a good many times and as you know uh, the process movement uh, is rising, emerging, uh, perhaps in some sectors even flourishing uh, in China. And was that part of the experience that led you to write your book, uh, Process Relational Philosophy? Or I guess I'm asking, tell me about China for you uh, and tell me what led you to write that book. Okay, they're, they're both related. and They happen in pretty much the same way, actually. Um, I was in Claremont and John Cobb invited me over to lunch at Pilgrim Place. And the first time, uh, Wang Shaha was there with him. And they asked me how I'd feel about going to China to teach process, relational philosophy. And I said, I would be terrified. And they looked a little taken back and said, well, why? And I said, because I don't know anything about China. And I was a little bit embarrassed to say to, to, to Jaha, I have trouble understanding you. What if I can't understand the questions that my students are asking in class? But we talked about it for a while, and they said, you know, I think what we need is somebody who is aware he doesn't know already, <laughs> that that's a good place to start, Bob. And so we talked about it, and I said, you know, terrifying as it is, I would love to go to China. What an amazing opportunity. And the first time I went, my wife Barbara and I went, and we went with you and taught, go taught with you, which was a great experience. Uh, in terms of writing the book, um, Process Relational Philosophy, an introduction to Alfred R. Whitehead, happened pretty much the same way, but a little more sneaky. Uh, John invited me over to lunch at Pilgrim Place, and that time Herman Green joined us for lunch. And John was talking, they were talking about the need for a series of introductory books, Introduction to Process Philosophy, then Process in Economics, Process in Art, Process in Politics, etc. And they said, well, Bob, we liked your little book on, on process theology. Would you be willing to write uh, an introduction to Whitehead's philosophy? And I said, well, you know, John, there are a lot of people around here who are much, have much greater expertise than I do. Not you know, just to mention you, John, and David Griffin, and Marjorie Suhaki, and Donald Sherburn. Wouldn't those people be better qualified to write this? I said, I tell you what, I'll be glad to help in any way that I can, but I really think that you ought to start with those people. Well, that afternoon, we went to a meeting over at the center, 
and John and, and Herman Green stood up and said, I'm pleased to announce that Bob Mesley has agreed to write an introduction to process relational philosophy. And so uh, that's how that happened. And the uh, part of the goal of that was to write a book that could be translated into Chinese for use in China, which happened fairly quickly and uh, has been a great honor for me. Just to give our listeners a, a little sense of some of these players, I'm sure our listeners know who John Cobb is. Uh, they may or may not know who Herman Green is. Herman Green is uh, director of an organization called the Center for Ecozoic Studies. And Herman Green is a student of, of Thomas Berry, as well as a student of Alfred North White, deeply interested in ecological civilization. Yeah. Um, now, I can understand why Herman said that about you <laughs> and why John said that about you, despite all those other luminaries, because you write in ways that are so accessible. And you speak to people in terms they understand. And process relational philosophy is written exactly that way. Process theology as well. Uh, does that gift come from teaching? Or where, where does that come from for you? Well, like you, Jay, I'm, an under, I'm primarily an undergraduate teacher. I've taught, I've taught undergraduate students for 36 years at a small liberal arts university. And so I wrote both of those introductory books. I just thought, well, how will I explain this class? They have no background in process theology, not much background in any kind of formal theology, and they don't have any background to speak of in philosophy or process thought. So I just focused on trying to write so that my students in my classes there would understand what was going on, and then I could try it out in class and see how it worked. So you also have a gift to write, you know, clearly and beautifully, and I, I think it's connected to our undergraduate teaching. So at least that's my take on it. Can I leap in? You, you were you asked about China, but I didn't really get to the part about how I felt about teaching in China. Please do. Go there. And I just want to say what an incredible experience Barbara and I both had in China. The, the amazing people, Wang Shiha, Mei Junfan, but you and a whole flock of people. We made friends in China. We, I got to, we, we were stunned when we went the first time and discovered that there were, I think, six at that time, Whitehead Wisdom Education Kindergartens in Beijing. Who would have imagined? you know, Whitehead Wisdom Education Kindergartens in Beijing. And in subsequent years, I got to cut a ribbon for the opening of one of those kindergartens. And we went back and we had pictures of us on the, you know, hanging on the shelves because we'd made friends there. It was, a, it was you know, process relational thought. I've said the point about beauty is that in contrast to being the one true way to think, process relational thinking at its root says for life to be rich we got to get over that idea that we've got it we have to open ourselves up to an emerging awareness of the world around us of all kinds whether it's people or insects you know or fish we have to open ourselves up and so trying to open ourselves up to this very different ways of thinking at the center for process studies there were always conferences on process and process and economics process 
and science, process and evolution, process and politics, you name it, and there was process and. And we went to China, we spoke, you and I both spoke at conferences at three major universities up and down the coast of China. And the topic would be process philosophy, or maybe constructive postmodernism, and. And I would say to Wang Shaha, they want a conference on process and economics, but I'm not an economist. And Shaha would say, you'll do fine, Bob. You'll do fine. And so we had to learn, you and I, how to get out of our, you know, out of our own territory and learn enough to make those connections. And so that learning to think in new ways, the flexibility of Chinese culture was really quite an experience. Um, I'll tell one story, Jay, the very first time that you and I talked, I used PowerPoint slides so that I could put keywords up and let the students discuss them in Chinese. And I spent four hours preparing my PowerPoint slides for the next morning, went in to get ready, and one of the Chinese professors came in and said, the students and I have been discussing and we'd like for you to talk about this. <laughs> I said, sure, what a good idea. And so with about five minutes notice, you just say, let's talk about that. And so China was a tremendous experience in flexibility and learning new ways to think. So I, yeah. I'm so grateful, so grateful for that. And I think one other thing that, that we learned, both of us, we made so many good friends. Mm -hmm. and, and the whole idea that there would be a conflict between an abstraction called China and, and an abstraction called the United States seems so far from our experience of the one-on-one -on -one friendships. Yes. Uh, the shared humanity, the shared humility. Yeah. And, and, and so um, I'm sure that that shapes us deeply. Now, when you went to China, Bob, um, one thing about process in China is they don't talk about God a whole lot. Nope. Uh, you know, they talk about interconnectedness and the cosmology and its relationship to all kinds of things, mm -hmm. but they don't talk about God. And that may have been a, a moment of freshness for you because everywhere else you go, uh, in the United States in particular, mm -hmm. uh, people are so interested in the process of understanding of God. Uh, I know enough about you to know you've got some questions concerning it. So what I think our listeners want to hear and I'm sure you've told it many times, but please tell it again. Bob Mesley on Whitehead's understanding of God. Please go with it. I'll be as short as I can be, but I got to take a little time on this. I grew up, as I said, in a very, a very wonderful religious community. And I, growing up, I had a strong sense of God's love for me. I felt the love of God poured into my heart through the Holy Spirit, which has been given me, to quote Paul in Romans. And that was a, a central piece of my life. My dad said, Bob, the way to do theology is to ask, what would a truly loving God be like? And what would a truly loving God be doing in the world? And he thought that that would show me that we indeed have the one true set of beliefs. But it backfired because the first thing I thought was, well, the truly loving God would not be playing favorites like this, would be out reaching out to the whole world. And eventually, for a variety of reasons, 
my friend God and I parted ways. One night I said, God, you're great. I, I really love you, but I just don't think you're there. I don't think you're there. And so we parted on good terms. God said, as long as you're honest with yourself, it'll be okay. We can be friends. And so I parted from God without the kinds of bitterness or disillusionment that some people experience in that moment. But I carried from my dad that sense that the way to evaluate a set of ideas is partly to ask, does it teach good values? You can generalize that beyond the question of God. Um, and then another one, of course, is it true? Which I learned from the guy who taught me about conferring. So when I encountered process, the pro, I can't say the process vision as if there's only one, of course, but generally speaking, the kind of vision of God that Whitehead opened up, that John Cobb and Marjorie Suhaki and you and others offered, I said, that is my friend God, now grown up, now free of the confines of a one true church, free of the bounds of not really understanding, you know, not accepting science. That is my God grown up. But when that happened, I had already spent several years rethinking the world and reconstructing my vision of the world in a way that I found to be, for me, clearer and simpler without any divine being in it. And so when I came to process theology, this, I had some technical differences with Whitehead that aren't important for anybody else, I think. But I said, wow, if you're going to believe in some sort of divine being who loves us and works in the world, this is a fabulous picture. It's ethically sound, intellectually responsible. It is what a loving God would be like and be doing in the world, not playing favorites. But the burden of proof for me had shifted. And somehow I, I always remained on the Wyman side, that, that, there, that you know, I just never got one over, for better or worse. And it has been complicated in my life, therefore, because in the process community, I'm such a big fan of process, the process vision of God there, that, that vision, that I'm happy to add for it, advocate for it. When my students were struggling to find a picture of God that made sense, I was delighted to say, well, consider this one. This will help. But those who said, I just can't do it, I could say, well, let me help you. Let's, let's talk about somebody named Wyman and others, Tillich and others. And I would try to help students find their own way. But it's also created complications. I'd go do a workshop on process theology, the process vision of God. And at some point, I'd have to say, folks, I'm over here in a different place. And it made life complicated for better and worse. So is that addressing what you're asking me? Well, sure it does. And, and I think that one thing that your witness does there is to help the process movement understand that there is space within that movement for non-theists as well as theists. And I think, and now Wyman was already there, but I think it, it helps that Bob Mesley is there also. Now, now, one of the intriguing things for, for theists about your perspective is that you can 
talk about God as a friend who you don't think exists. <laughs> yes. And yet you keep talking. And, and, and so I think for, for, for me, uh, I really respect that actually, Bob. And it's almost as if there's this mythic person alive in some way in your imagination who, by the way, doesn't exist. And I just think that is an intriguing mind. It would be much easier for you simply to dismiss it and say, you know, that's, that's superstition, pure and simple, let's, let's go our way. But you straddle this line um, where even though you're in the non-theistic world, you understand the, theist, the process theistic world. I think that's really intriguing and important. Well, thank you. It's, it's important that I got over being in the one true church. And I, uh -huh. think I still am over being in the one true church. As I don't know what the truth is, I just struggle my way, muddle my way through the best I can. And day after day, when I've talked about process, the process vision of God, Barbara, my wife Barbara will say, well, today did you finally persuade yourself that Jay and John and Marjorie are right? I said, no, for somehow I failed. I still am where I am. But I, I, they're both powerful, wonderful. I mean, the process vision of reality in the broad sense, and there are many visions, many process relational visions, as you know. It, it's such a wonderful way to think about the world. With or without that divine being, it still draws us to pluralism. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say, well, you should be tolerant to be nice. Mm -hmm. It's to say, your life is going to be impoverished if you are not actively open to other people. And so that's true with regard to theology, but gosh, I have to say, Jay, look at what's happening around the world today, but let's look at what's happening in the United States. Mm -hmm. Look at our race, racial issues right now. A big part of our problem is that there are so many white Americans who cannot bring themselves to be actively open to the terrible suffering that racism has inflicted on black Americans or Hispanic American. And until we can embrace a way of thinking that says, your life will be impoverished until you have the strength to listen to these stories of suffering, we're not gonna solve these problems. And so from my point of view, process relational thinking and there's more than one way to do it, is begging people to seek the beauty of rich experience, even if, and Whitehead is clear about this, sometimes that means walking along the border of chaos. Because sometimes richer forms of beauty demand a little chaos. So I had to say that because it's so on my mind right now. It's so relevant. Uh, Bob, are you, you've read Bernard Loomer? Yes. Yeah. And you, and you know his idea of, of a wide or, or a soul with size. <laughs> um, what, what you say reminds me of Loomer's image of a soul with size. Yes. That has the strength to receive what is unfamiliar and, and, and maybe even frightening. Yes. And the soul grows in size with so doing. His, his Loomer's image of, 
of a soulless size uh, influenced you in any way? Absolutely. Um, by chance, when I was a student at, at the University of Chicago Divinity School, I got to hear Bernard Loomer give his talk on two conceptions of power, the distinction between unilateral power and relational power. Unilateral power is the idea that I'm going to try to affect you as much as I can, but not let you affect me. I mean, we do that all the time in sports, you know, in business and politics. I'm going to try to score against you. I'm going to keep you from scoring against me. I'm trying to get votes away from you, not let you get votes, make money, so forth. But unilateral power is when you think, use it as an image of a person, that a person is somebody who has the ability to affect other people without being affected by them. Wow, that's really is an impoverishing view of personhood. And so Bernard Loomer developed an idea of relational power, which I have continued to work on, which is just another way of talking about Wyman's creative transformation. It's the strength, first of all, to be able to be actively open to others and to integrate, create yourself out of that, and then go back to those other people and deepen the conversation. Do you mind if I quote Loomer just a second? Do you have time? It's short, the world of the individual who can be influenced by another without losing their identity or freedom is larger than the world of the individual who fears being influenced. And it goes on for pages of wonderful stuff. And by the way, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. did his dissertation on Tillich and Wyman, their mm -hmm. ideas of God. And when you listen to Martin Luther King Jr., you can see wow, there is some Wyman going on in there. It is definitely soul power. That we have the power to accept your abuse and not hate you. And he's very clear. We have a power. It's not Molotov cocktails or guns, but we have a power. And that comes out in the Bloomer's vision of relational power. So there's a direct connection there. There I am. No, no, that, that makes such sense. And it's so important. And so you see the notion of relational power as one of the um, most important ideas for us to, for the people in the United States, but other parts of the world to, to embrace. That would be one of the legacies of the process movement or one of the gifts of the process movement for you. I really hope so. Uh, process thinkers, began really by talking about the difference between persuasion and coercion. But it took a while, I think, and I'm not sure that the idea of relational power mm -hmm. as the, in my framework, the active intentional openness, and then the self-creativity, and then the ability to sustain mutual relationships. I don't think there has been as much conversation. So for example, we still are inclined to set, talk about what God can't do in the process vision of God. And I think it would be better to write a book titled God's Infinite Relational Power. That's a different title that sets the conversation on a different route. Mm -hmm. And if you wanted to ask what I hope I will have contributed to the process world, I'd like for some people to pick up the mantle and write books on relational power and politics, relational power and interfaith dialogue, relational power and economics. 
those topics are already covered by process people, but I'd like for the, I'd like, I hope somebody will pick up and write some dissertations and books on relational powers as a way of approaching life that uh, would carry on the work of Wyman and Loomer and Whitehead in that way. And just, just to re reiterate that, so yes, there was a time when process thinkers talked about persuasion, not coercion, as, as, as the way God is at work. But I hear what you're saying, that the notion of relational power goes, goes deeper than that. Um, it includes a lot more. Now, I'd ask you to write that, write that book, Bob. It's never too late. <laughs> it's never too late. Right now, I'm really being busy being a grandfather, which makes well, a I wanted, I wanted you to talk about that. Now, uh, for, for my website, you've written a couple of things. Uh, you've written one on relational power, and I hope folks listening will go to openhorizons.org and read Bob Messley on relational power. You've also written about fudge. Yes. Chocolate fudge. Mm -hmm. And you've written about grandparenting. With now, Barbara. I think I wrote that one. Barbara. And I think you wrote one essay, as I recall, on something like, my grandson is Brahman, or, or something. Oh, yeah. That's great. And I, I'm, I call that the mystical side of Bob Mesley. Absolutely. I would love to be more. I'd love, when I grow up, I'd love to be a Buddhist and a mystic much more than I am now. I, I aspire to those things still. But yeah. Uh huh. And well, I, might, I, I think you're on your, on your way. You're on your way. Next lifetime, maybe. I will say that the, the great example of relational power is in the Bhagavad Gita, the passage that says, those who burn with the joy and suffer the sorrow of every creature within their own heart, making their own each joy and each sorrow, them I hold the highest. Their every action is wed to the welfare of other creatures. Now that is a vision of infinite relational power that is just fabulous. I just love it. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Now, would you like to say a word about family life and process relational thought or fudge <laughs> and process relational thought or the role of fudge in family life? Well, let me start then. Relational talk. <laughs> we really need to interview my wife, Barbara, sometime. She's a real fan. She is the process theologian in the family. Uh, she has figured out that, that, that God and you are right, and God does exist and loves us. And so she would be great to interview about that sometime. But she is the person in our family far more than I have the capacity to do. She has a lot more relational power. She is able to sustain an astonishing number of relationships with human beings around the world. A lot of them are our former students, friends from China, but she can sustain an incredible number of relationships with people uh, from all over the place and know their birthdays. There's a, ask her anybody's birthday, she'll know it. But she knows what's going on in their life. She knows the tragedies and the joys that are happening. And she brings that to our family every day. Um, she knows what's going on in our lives far better than I do and is a much, in that respect, much more compassionate 
an other-centered person than I seem to have the strength to do. I'm a nice guy, but Barbara's the really relational, powerfully person in the room. Uh, with regard to fudge, my mother taught me to make fudge. I need to explain that it is not fudge that you pour into a pan and let set. You have to beat it until at the last moment, you pour it out of the pan like chocolate calligraphy so that it literally sets as it pours and you get a river of chocolate heaven that just goes and it sets and it's awfully good. It's good. But the only way I could learn to make it was for my mother to love me enough to let me fail a whole lot of times. And so my fudge is made with my mother's love just cooked right in. And for me, that is, you know, a lot about it. You know? Sounds to me like your mother had some relational power too. She was a model. She was a model. That's you know, the metaphor you used, it wasn't a metaphor, what you said about Barbara, she knows what's going on in other people's lives. Yes. And she cares. And, 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 and it even gets specific. She knows their birthday. Yes. It honors them in that way. Uh, to me, those are vivid instances of relational power in the personal sphere. Yeah, yeah. In the domestic sphere. Barbara is just a model of that in so many important respects. Mm -hmm. And we are, you know, I'm just a lucky guy. I wake up every morning saying, I am a lucky guy. I am married to this fabulous woman. And we have these fabulous, we have four wonderful grandchildren, two here and two, unfortunately, for us, far away in L.A. But mm -hmm. uh, anyway, we have a wonderful family, two great kids. So I'm a lucky guy, Jay. Well, Bob, in, in my view, when you talk about your relationship with Barbara and your grandchildren and your mother and your students and many, many others I know, I hear a lot of process relational philosophy uh, in the heart, in the heart and, and, and on the ground. And I, I appreciate that so much from you. Now, you're going to have an important legacy. You already do. You would not believe the number of people actually in the world because process relational philosophy has been translated into a good many languages, I think. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh -huh. Spanish? Yeah. What, what, can you well, think of some? Well, the process theology book is, gosh, I'm going to get the list. In, Jap in Korean was the first thing. Uh, but but Spanish, Portuguese, um, the philosophy, and then also it's been tra translated into the Japanese. So I'm not sure if it was published, but the process philosophy book immediately went into Chinese and has been mm -hmm. a standard textbook there. Anyway, mm -hmm. I'm losing track of the languages. But it's, yeah. a, it's a standard textbook for a lot of people here. Yeah, and at the, at the Cobb Institute. Um, when people say, I want to learn, I want to begin to understand process relational philosophy, a lot of people turn to your book as the, the point of departure, the springboard. And, and it just makes me happy to know you, actually. I, and I'm, Thank you. I'm lucky we're all, enough. We're all so, so grateful to you yeah. uh, for what you've done and who you are. Yeah, thank you. I must say there are, of course, a lot of people out there doing really good work, you know, Tom Ord is writing some great stuff on what it means for God to be loving and what, you know, God's work in the world. And I think that my process theology book is, is you know, long overdue, but it's 
being replaced by other people doing really good work in that area. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, you know, inspiring, encouraging others to write those introductions, I hope will go on, but there's some really good people doing good work out there. I, you know, if I think about, I would love it if a hundred or hundred or 200 years from now, I was a little tiny footnote in an encyclopedia on process relational thinking in China. If somebody, there was this little tiny footnote saying, well, Bob Mesley wrote this book that contributed to the cause, that would, uh, that would be a pretty amazing thing. But also it would say, and Mesley, of course, is known for having been a friend of Jay McDaniel, the real, one of the real, <laughs> and Wang Jiha, and Mei Jun Pan, uh, the people who really made China happen, along with John Cobb, so. Well, now, you know, of course I'm reminded of Whitehead's quip that the whole of Western philosophy is a footnote to Plato. Yeah. And now we have a new phrase, a footnote to Mesley. Um, <laughs> But no, I, I know that you, in your humility, you would never think that way. But I think you are going to be that footnote. And I think you are already. And, and that's a great thing. So. Thank you, Jay. You're very kind. I really appreciate that. And this was so much fun. Thank you for inviting me to do this. I, I, you know, I had a great time thinking about it. So. Well, we, we did, too. I'm talking about I did and everybody that's listening in on this. So. You take good care. Big thanks. Now, I know you're a swimmer. And I don't know what time it is right now, but have you taken your swim in the lake yet today? Not yet. Uh, here, the beach is closed between 11 in the morning and 7 in the evening to keep people from crowding together and spreading COVID. So you have to go earlier in the morning. So I may go over at about 7 o'clock this evening if the lake is calm and take a swim in Lake Michigan. You know, that's... It would be a nice day. It's a lovely day here, and that is something I hope to do. Well, let that be our image of you. Swimming in Lake Michigan, making fudge, being with Barbara, being with your family, writing books, being humble, um, being a footnote, and a great footnote. So thanks so much, Bob. Thank you very much, Jay. Be safe. Take good care of yourself. All right. You take care, too. Bye-bye. Conversations in Process is a co-production of the Cobb Institute and Open Horizons. If you'd like to support this podcast and help us realize our aim to advance wisdom, harmony, and the common good, please consider making a donation by visiting cobb.institute. That's cobb.institute and clicking on the donate button.